It lies somewhere between the pit of your stomach, your racing heart, and your brain, somehow trying to keep it all together. It's an area we call the adrenaline zone. I'm retired astronaut Dr. Sandra Magnus. And I'm retired Navy fighter pilot Admiral Sandy Winnefeld. We're two adrenaline junkies who love spending time with people who are really passionate about pushing their boundaries as far as possible. It's hard to imagine a riskier occupation than surfing the biggest waves in the world. Getting crushed and then tumbled head over heels by tons of water or smashed against rocks or even attacked by a shark are not everyday hazards for most of us. Yet Australia's Jamie Mitchell, as one of the small cadre of big wave surfers, faces these risks routinely. Not only is he an amazing surfer, he is arguably the best long distance paddling competitor ever, having won the 32 mile Molokai to Oahu race 10 straight years. So welcome back to the Adrenaline Zone for season two. And congratulations to Sandra, who was inducted into the Astronaut Hall of Fame while we were gone. Thanks, but I think you one-upped me by making it onto the Russia sanctions list. Truly a badge of honor. So let's get going. Many thanks to our sponsor for this episode, Duncan. Slow-steeped, ultra-smooth Duncan cold brew should be at the top of any adrenaline seekers checklist. We caught up with Jamie Mitchell while he was recovering from an injury suffered, you guessed it, while surfing a monster wave in Portugal. So, Jamie, welcome to the Adrenaline Zone. Thank you, guys. Thanks so much for having me. It's an honor to be on the Adrenaline Zone. Well, look, you've made a, an amazing career out of both big wave surfing and long distance paddle racing, and we're going to get into both of those things. And we've wanted to talk to someone about this amazing sport and all the risks that come along with it ever since we, uh, at the very beginning, when we conceived of, of doing this show, because big wave surfing is about as, as pretty, you know, adrenaline generating as it gets, <laughs> I, I would think. Pretty incredible sport. So how actually did you get into surfing? And I mean, it starts as a hobby, but yet there's a whole professional circuit that that you get into. What's that transition look like? And how did you get started? You know, I just grew up around the ocean. So I grew up in a, like a small little surf town in a place called Coffs Harbour, which is uh, on the east coast of Australia in, in New South Wales. Like, And my dad was a surfer and we live super close to the beach. So, I mean, it was just a... I was just a little beach kid, you know, every, every, we had a creek, you know, like a, a, a really nice, beautiful creek, you know, two minutes from my house. And so between fishing and swimming in the creek and surfing and then, you know, being in the, the, what they call the nippers program in Australia, it's like the junior lifeguard program that they have in the States. Uh, you know, they, I was in that at five years old. So my path was sort of set from a young age of being in the oceans, but but as for surfing, I, I yeah, surfing was purely a hobby for me growing up. I had really had no aspirations of being a professional surfer, but I had aspirations of being a professional Ironman, which is a, a run, surf, paddle, swim, surf, ski, like a triathlon in the ocean. So my, you know, right up until my early 20s, I competed and trained heavily, heavily in that, hoping to make a, a, a professional series in Australia. And then... uh I mean, I just did everything. I did the little athletics. I did swimming. I did football. I mean, anything that got me out of school, I was doing it, you know? <laughs> That's great. Uh, how old were you uh, when you sort of realized that you had a little bit of talent in terms of pure surfing? 
and and started to get interested in big waves. Yes, the surfing thing came later because I surfed, but I was just a you know a, a, a once a couple of months type of guy surfing. But I was always down the the ocean, paddling, swimming, and and catching waves on these big other surf crafts. But I, I did this Molokai to Oahu paddleboard race, so that's where the big transition started. So. I won my first Molokai to Oahu paddleboard race in 2002. And at that stage, I was, had a jet ski. We were starting to learn how to tow in uh, surfing back where I was on the, on the Gold Coast now. And I had this dream of um, being in the Eddie Aikau Invitational event from a young kid as well. So around that, you know, 2002, so I was like probably, um, 35 in my early 30s so super late I mean late to be a professional you know but I was I was in Hawaii paddling um, I was seeing all these big waves and I and I started to come to the North Shore and spend three months in the winter and my first full winter was in 2004 and that's when I was able to sort of start to go hey there, there might be an opportunity here for me to um, with my paddling background loving the big waves sort of be able to package that up to a sponsor and try and see if I could potentially chase my dreams of of doing it all, being a waterman basically, not just surfing, not just paddling, but you know, at, at all together. So early 2000s, 2004 was when I had that real pipe dream of, of trying to go after it. Wow. Yeah. I didn't start surfing till I was in my mid forties. And, and that's when I discovered that God invented the surfboard to keep the truly talented from ruling the earth. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, you got into big wave surfing and you know, the power of a big wave is, is just simply jaw dropping. It's enormous. And, and so dropping into a truly big wave has to feel like jumping off a 10 story building into total chaos. And as, as I mentioned before we started, most of our listeners aren't surfers. So tell us about big wave surfing and the things you have to do just to get into the wave, uh, unlike a normal break. Yeah, there's, so there's two types of big wave surfing. There's um, paddling. So you just have your big gun. It's, got, it's like a 10-foot long um, surfboard. And you are, you are by yourself. You paddle out by yourself. And you are trying to paddle into these giant waves. And then there's towing surfing. So you have a jet ski. You have a machine that can go 60 miles an hour. You have a tow rope, it pulls you up and it will get you into the position of the wave. So it's much easier to tow in surf because you don't need to position yourself and, you know, be in harm's way, really. You know, you can be way out the back seat, coming from a mile out, find that swell and be let go and be cruising in the wave. Like realistically, if you had the courage to do it, I could get you up on the surfboard and I could, and you could let go into a wave that was 60 feet tall. But, wow. how, but, if, but the next thing would be is to survive it if you fell off, you know. <laughs> That's right. So yeah. on the way down. Yeah. You look, big wave surfing, I've said it before. It's like, it's like running and jumping off a, a six-story building, trying to hold your breath and then having a, a crocodile like death roll you under the water while you're trying to get to the surface. You know what I mean? Like it's like a car crash underwater. You got to hold your breath while being ragdolled and there's a chance of drowning. And then when you come up, there may be another one that you may get like a, and then you got to go back under and you might do that for another three or four times, right? So it's very mentally challenging. You have to be very, very calm. You have to um, be well-trained and you have to have experience. And I think that comes with anything that has massive risk-taking and that can take your life. You don't want to just go jump in the deep end, but you know, and every wave is different. 
mother nature that's the the crazy thing about what we do is it changes consistently you could paddle out it could be sunny it can be the wind is beautiful and then all of a sudden you know the wind could crank up to 20 knots and then the conditions are starting to get worse and the tide has changed and so you're not just dealing with like a racetrack you know, you're constantly evolving around the changing conditions as well as you know what what's in front of you a lot a lot of variables which make it challenging but rewarding at the same time you know i hadn't thought about it before from the from the viewpoint of being super comfortable in the water because you're when you fall because it's going to happen right you're tumbling around in the water and you have to be able to understand where the surface is it's like doing the helicopter dunker sandy you know, with a with a paddling board, you're actually um, tethered to it with a, a leash, a leg rope. So, mm-hmm. you know, one of the worst things that can happen is that you can, you know, because we get sent to the bottom very fast. So if you don't have a chance to equalize, you can pop an eardrum. Oh. So then you lose all sense of where up and down is. So now, now you can imagine you've just fallen off a 50-foot wave. You've had the wind knocked out of you. You're at the bottom of the ocean. It's black. And now... You have no idea where up is. And if that leash breaks, now you're in really big trouble because what the leash does, the board will be at the surface and you can actually grab the leash and climb yourself to the top. But if that leash breaks, the only thing that will bring you to the top is the flotation that you're wearing. Worst case scenario, which is leash breaks, pop your eardrum, no inflation, now you're in a, a real, really, really bad spot. And you just, at that point in time, you need to go to your happy place, relax, and let Mother Nature do its work. And you just try and float to the surface. You know, so Jamie's talking about all the things I experienced with like eight foot waves. Okay. But, <laughs> but he's talking 60 foot waves. Yeah, no kidding. But so, how do you train for that? Do you guys go through certain safety training to deal with those kind of circumstances? Or you just learn by starting with the small waves? And then by the time you get to the big waves, it's sort of second nature. It's both. Yeah. You know, you, yeah. you got to, you got to crawl before you can uh, walk, you know, so they say. And so, yeah, you know, just working your way up, you know, from, eight foot to 10 feet to 12 feet. Then there's a really great company out there called Brag, B-W-R-A-G. It's a big wave rescue assessment group. And they do courses all around the world that you can go, you know, learn CPR, you learn breathing techniques, um, and they go through a whole bunch of stuff. So there's some really cool training now, underwater training that you see people doing with weights, you know, holding your breath underwater while doing exercises underwater and stuff like that. Um, XPT Life, a guy like Lad Hamilton developed that. So there's a lot of different things, you know, like for me, like I'm constantly training. Um, I'm always trying to be in shape because, you know, I could get called to go and surf a 60-foot wave in tomorrow. You know, there's, that swell might pop up on the maps and, you know, might go, hey, there's going to be a the biggest swell of the years in Tahiti. Um, and then we got to activate and get ready and fly halfway across the world to do that, you know, at a, an instance m- moment. So there's sort of a collective network, I suppose, where people are watching the weather, they're watching the combination of waves. And uh, at some point you get a email alert or something that says, hey, uh, Nazari's looking like it's going to break here in the next day or so and you you've got a bag packed and you just go is there a network there yeah there's like surfline and there's a bunch of different um wave forecasting companies surfline being the best and the biggest and part of our job is to actually become surf forecasters ourselves. you know to look at the weather maps and 
you know, you can see a storm brewing seven to eight days out. So you can start to see that storm, how it's performing, how it's moving, how it's forming. And and then you start to activate, you know, you start to put things into place. And then if that storm keeps on track, that looks good. I'll start to talk to the internal guys at Surfline who are the best in the business. And they start to give me, hey, Jamie, you should really start to get serious about this swell it's looking really good and then and then we just yeah we book the flights and make sure that we've got all our gear and and get ready to you know like i said activate halfway around the world to go and surf these waves so it's uh it's nearly more stressful leading up to the swell than it actually is surfing it Duncan is made for everyone with the determination, the drive, and the guts to do something new or who wants to push their boundaries. It's the fuel for every mission, challenging pursuit, or adventure. Whether you're embarking on a new journey or whether you're wrapping up your adventure, you know there'll be a Duncan waiting for you. And if it's speed you're after, order ahead and it'll be ready when you get there. It's simple. In, out, and on your way. So how do you decide when a swell is too dangerous to surf or is that not a thing? <laughs> I love it. I love it. You know, it's, it, it really comes down to the conditions. So, yeah. you know, I don't think any big wave surfer would say there's anything too big, but it can be big and stormy. If it's yeah. blowing 50 miles an hour and it's a hurricane, like obviously you're not going to go out. So everything has to come together, you know, like, you know, the wind has to be light coming from the right direction. So basically. If the swell is there, man, it's the right direction for that right spot, but it really comes down to the wind. If the wind is blowing the wrong direction, it's just a no-go. Unfortunately, that happens a lot. Um, the wind and the weather dictate how we do that, and Mother Nature seems to you know, have its own mind sometimes. I just posted on my Instagram a couple of stories ago was my first daughter had just been born in August of 2015. And, you know, you get all these people saying, is that going to change? Are you going to, are you going to not take any more risks now because you have a family? And, and I'm like, well, I wasn't thinking about it until you asked me this stupid question. You know what I mean? <laughs> so in the way that my mind works, so I, I had to go and prove to myself, right? So I actively was looking for a storm because I didn't want to wait. This was in the middle of summer in Hawaii, no waves in summer in Hawaii. So in my mind now, I'm going to be thinking about this question for the next six months until the next big swell comes. And I didn't want to be stewing on that and then go and surf a yeah. swell. So I've there was a swell going to Australia where I'm originally from, and I made the call to go over. And it was a 50-50 call. It was uh, the, the weather didn't look great. It was just, you know, looking back at it now, it was a, it was a really bad call. But I was gung-ho on going over and seeing if I did want to still put myself at risk with a newborn and I went over went out I was the only one out there the conditions weren't great and I ended up getting knocked down underwater hyperextending my back fracturing my elbow tearing my um my MLC on my knee and uh and then my 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 family had to come and meet me in Australia to rehab you know but I realized that I still loved it but it was a really stupid way to go and do it you know and that was a perfect example of it depends on where you are in your life. You know, some people are young and itching to prove themselves and they're willing to take that risk. And and I was one of those people, obviously. But uh, now as I get older, 
I definitely want to say that I'm more mature and I'm definitely pick and choose which swells to go to for a number of reasons. One, I don't want to get hurt as much. Um, number two, I do have family. So it affects them if I do get hurt, like I just did in Nazare, and just cost time, energy, wasting money to go to a swell that is a 50-50 is just not the way I want to do things anymore, you know? So, you know, it's amazing that, that so many parallels here with other guests we've had that say as they mature in their sport, they remain equally committed to the sport. They remain still energized by the risk, but they give it just a little more margin as, as they get more experienced. It sounds very similar to the story that that you're telling. So do you have a, a favorite break, Jamie? I mean, there are places all around the world. There's Peahi in Hawaii, there's Nazare in Portugal, there's Mavericks in California, and who knows where else? But do you have a personal favorite? I mean, I have to say I have a really affinity with Mavericks. I hate the cold water, but... I love that little town. I love um, everything about it. I love the wave. And Jaws, the two biggest, most perfect waves uh, come, uh, one's Jaws in Maui, Piahi. The next one is Cloudbreak, which is off the Tavarua and the Motu Islands in Fiji. They're the two most biggest, perfect, most beautiful waves. And then uh, Mavericks is just intense. And yeah, so I would say those three sort of come to mind. That uh, are my my you know when I when I get to go to those ways I'm really excited. Does this turn more into a more or less into a circuit because the way the weather patterns move around the globe you guys kind of know where you're going to end up at any given time and then everybody just goes. You know, there's a bunch of people that were on the same program, you know, and we end up yeah. at the same place. But there are definitely times where you know when swells come and there's going to be a bunch of places that are good you know, and so people will separate and some people will take their chances and going, you know, to a different place. So Jamie, I used to live in Portugal. I actually had a board shaped there by a, a local guy and would drive over to Nazare and look at that break when it was big. You got hurt there recently. That's, tell us a little bit about how you injured yourself in your most recent escapades. <laughs> well, I decided to go over there because it looked like we had a, Nazare is really hard to forecast. Like when you're talking about the forecast scenarios, it's the Atlantic changes all the time. So I've booked a flight to go to Nazareth. Everything looked great, got there and didn't surf for a week and had to fly home. That's, I mean, that's, that's how bad it can be. So uh, this perfect week popped up on the forecast. One of my friends from Australia was already there. I called another friend and we said, hey, it looks great for a week. Why don't we go? So we went over and it actually stayed really good for a week. We were there, we were having a good time. But when we were over there, they decided to call on the uh, a towing contest there. So what that means is if you're not in the contest, you don't get the surf because they shut the beach down. So I um, put my hand up while I was there. I'm like, hey, if there's a spot, I'd really love to get in. So luckily enough, I got a spot. So I was in the contest. Uh, we're on the last heat of the day. Our team was in second place and I was in second place overall. And I was looking for a, I needed to get a score, you know, and that competitive juices and that flow and I took off on a wave with two minutes to go that I probably, and I tried to pull into the barrel to get the score and it was a judgment error, but I was just, you know, in that fight or flight type of mindset and uh, the wave just landed right on me, squashed me and ended up breaking my back. I, I fractured my L3, sort of got like a concussion underwater, got like, I got hit so hard that I was seeing stars and yeah, so I had to get, you know, taken to the beach on the rescue sled and had to lift me up onto the harbour wall and then I had to get taken to the hospital in the ambulance. So 
Something tells me you'll be back in the water as soon as you can, though. Yeah, yeah, I'm working hard to get back. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm finally back working out. I'm, I haven't been surfing. There's just something about the hyperextension of your back when you're laying on the surfboard that gives me a little bit of grief right now. Just sitting here right now, like when I get up, I'll feel like I've got a really old man's back. But then, as long as I'm moving, you know, when I'm swimming and running and doing all this other stuff, my back feels great. But when I stop. And I'm just sitting and not uh, moving. It, it sort of seizes up, you know. So I guess that's the eight old adage of uh, use it or lose it. Just keep moving, you know. You know, that's a that's a real thing I discovered after living on the space station four and a half months. Use it or lose it is a thing. So you've you've talked about two sort of accidents you you were in. Have you had others? Is it maybe happening ten percent of the time or eighty percent of the time or what do you think? Major, I had one in um, Mexico in Puerto Escondido. I had a, and it wasn't a really big wave at all, but the board, I jumped off in the barrel and the leash strung out and went flung back. And the board's tail hit me in the sternum and it fractured my sternum. And, oh my and that may be the closest. It's a contact I, sport. Yeah, that may be the closest I've come to maybe dying because. And a weird story is that I had asthma growing up my whole life. And that, funnily enough, if you go figure, but I learned how to breathe when I've been, you know, when anyone knows about asthma, you know, the tube shrinks. And so if you're sucking out of a straw there, you imagine sucking out of like a, an eighth of that, you know, so you don't get much air. So you learn how to breathe under duress. And I could not breathe. I got hit, felt like I got hit by the heavyweight by Mike Tyson square in the chest. You know, it was like I was shocked. I couldn't move my arm. I couldn't wave. I couldn't yell for help. I couldn't do anything. I was on my own. And I was getting recycled in this heavy beach break and getting pounded underwater, coming up, just getting little sips of air. But if I didn't have the knowledge of how to understand just taking sips of air and to relax, yeah. I think I would have panicked and died. I really do. The one thing that I thought was the worst thing that ever happened to me in my life actually saved my life. Like, so it's really funny, you know. Let's shift gears just a little bit. You know, in addition to being a, a world-renowned big wave surfer, you're also a world-renowned paddleboard racer or paddle racer. And this isn't with a, you know, a nice little oar or anything like that. This is literally paddling with your arms, right? So tell us a little bit about that sport. What kind of equipment you use, what kind of distances you're racing, and uh, how the whole race works. Because uh, that's a pretty unique sport. So it started from that junior lifeguards, you know, like when I was paddling all those years and when I got into my early 20s, a race formed in, in, in Hawaii. And in Hawaii and California, they have, have had longer distance races. Like the, there's two. There's the two most prestigious races in the world. It's the Catalina Classic, which is from Catalina um, off of California, and it, it finishes in Manhattan Beach. And then there's the Molokai to Oahu, which is class of the world championships. And it's a 32-mile race as well, which starts on Molokai Island, and you paddle across the Kahivi Channel and you finish on Oahu. So you, it's an inner island paddle. And uh, I'd heard about this paddle and I decided that I'd like to try and do it, you know. And um, so, yeah, so I just uh, decided to come and have a holiday and, and train and do it. And uh, I did it as a team with a friend of mine the, the first time and uh, just fell in love with Hawaii, the people. And you've won the race 10 years in a row. Yeah, 2002 I did it. was <laughs> my first time I won it. And I, uh, yeah, I kept coming back because I loved it and, yeah, go on some sort of roll. You know, it's it's just one of those endurance events. I'm a, I love the it's five to six hours. It's you know, you it's not like a swimming pool. It's you know, you 
you're dealing with currents and tides and wind and you're navigating, you have an escort boat with you, you've got a, your nutrition is so important. So it's just this really intense mental endurance race. And I thrive in those situations. I was, I think I was born to be in those situations, you know, and, and I loved it, you know, and once I started winning, I got addicted to it and I just wanted to you know, get to two and then I wanted to get three and no one had won three. And I'm like, okay, let's get the four. And all of a sudden you're at six, seven, eight. And you're like, well, maybe I'll try and get 10, you know? And, um, and, uh, yeah, so it was, uh, it's a really, really, it's a rite of passage for watermen and water women that live in Hawaii and that live that lifestyle. It's a real special place. So training for that, I guess, is just time on board. I've, I've run a couple of marathons and it's all about time on feet. This sounds very similar because it's an endurance race. You just practice, you out, paddle for an hour, paddle for two hours, paddle for three hours. Yeah. Yeah. Lots of, uh, you know, I, I did a lot of cross training as well. I did some, I would do strength training, obviously swimming because swimming is the closest thing to paddling. The biggest part of Molokai to Wau is just surfing, right? So you're actually catching the swells. So the trade winds oh. blow in that direction and so you're actually it's you know you could go paddle in that say a lake which is like sort of like california and catalina it's more like the guy that's the fittest sort of will win because it's just it's sort of monotonous right it's like going around newport harbor or something or going in mm-hmm. you know lake havasu or whatever it is but over here it's you're surfing it's reading the ocean it's reading the ocean bumps and it's a technique and it's a skill and it's a um it's a talent to be able to ride these swells and oceans and navigate across and that's what i love to do that was my my bread and butter so uh so yeah doing a lot of that downwind paddling practicing um our boards were 18 feet long um, they had a rudder system on the back where you would kick a, a tiller bar and, and, the, and the, the fin would move so you could steer. And, uh, yeah, so there's a lot that goes into it, a lot that can go wrong. You know, like if you've been triathlons or Ironmans and stuff like that, if your nutrition is not good, you're, you're cramping or if you, you, know, you start to cramp, your race is over and uh, you're throwing up and people get seasick and you know there's sharks and there's flying fish it's like it's not it's not a straightforward race you know so um but that's what i loved about it it was it was intriguing to me and again you're you're paddling with your arms and your your hands right it's not this is not a you don't have an oar or a paddle you're actually paddling no they they added the stand up paddle race to that race after the years but no for me it was you're just basically riding a a big surfboard a big bit of foam it's interesting that it's half mental and and half physical out in uh, in Hawaii and like the ancient islanders you know you're reading tides currents and and uh, that if you don't do that well that's your competitive edge right because most of the guys are in pretty good shape no definitely wow. being able to um you know make sure you don't go off course um you know go off you know the rum line as you say you know you ha- you have a straight line that you from point a to point b that you have on a gps and then you know you have that rum line and you you know, you can deviate only so much either side of it, you know, on the high side or the low side. But if you decide to, you know, take the swells one way and just keep going and, and, and not like sort of tack back, like sailing, you know, like if you just go with the wind and continually go, you're just going to end up, you got to tack at some stage, you got to tack back up and you've got to understand that. So it's, uh, wow. yeah, there's a real art form involved in it. And you get to be your own artist on the water. You know what I mean? Like you get to sort of draw your, canvas and your masterpieces from point a to point b and how do you get there how do you feel at the six hour point 
Yeah, it's it it's it's like a grand, grand piano is dropping on your back, and you know, last thing you want to do is swallow more salt water and be in the sun. You know, it's like you just want to be on dry land. That's for sure. But you know, that ability to read the ocean does not come easy. It it sounds like it just takes years and years of doing it to be able to to read the ocean like that. It's a it's a lifetime, and that's where the yeah. big wave surfing for me too is is a lot of it's um you know reading the ocean, reading the water. And I've been doing that since I can remember, since I was five years old and I'm now 45. So for 40 years, I've entrenched myself into the ocean and and still learning today. And um, it's a never-ending learning process, you know. And, you know, the saying is you never turn your back on the ocean. You know, the day that is the day that you're going to get, you know, slammed and hurt and it's disrespecting, you know. So it's uh, there's a lot of a lot a lot that goes into being very very comfortable in in the situations that I put myself into. That's for sure. I'm very lucky. I um, never had any major major run-ins, thank God. But I used to have blinders on too, you know, because I would paddle. <laughs> my training would be I have my parents drop me off thirty miles down the coast. And I'd be like a mile offshore, like for five hours by myself, you know. And I was just like, well, I would think I would see things or things in certain moments. And I, you know, you get a, a feeling, get that, you know, my your senses of, you know, I, I had senses when I, I was being followed sometimes, or I maybe had seen. But I was like, what am I going to do? Like I'm, I'm a mile out to sea, like I can't stop paddling, and I just, I just was like, I'm just doing my thing. From fighter pilots to base jumpers to neurosurgeons. Or, you know, the rest of us nine to five hustlers. Everyone needs a bold morning jumpstart or a robust afternoon pick-me-up from a slow, steep Dunkin' cold brew. Whether looking straight down the face of a thousand-foot cliff or staring wide-eyed into a baffling computer spreadsheet, we all need the same thing. So whatever your pursuit, start with a Dunkin' cold brew. So speaking of being alone at sea, Jamie, the late Eddie Ayoku was lost at sea by himself, right? He was he was on a journey by himself and obviously a terribly famous surfer. You know, it's the, the biggest, biggest historical name I know in big wave surfing, but you know, Eddie would go and that sort of thing. But um, uh, who have been your uh, sort of historical role models or, or did you grow up early enough in the sport that, you know, you are the role model? Where do you, how do you feel about that? For big wave surfing, I mean, Eddie Aikau is a, a massive inspiration and hero of mine, that no, no doubt. I mean, he was on the Hokulau, which was the Hawaiian sailing canoe, and they were heading out into the Kiwi Channel where we paddle. And that's where the, the boat capsized and he went for help and he was never found again. So his body, we paddled through that Kiwi Channel, what they call a channel of bones, right? So there's a deep connection. He was a lifeguard. I was a lifeguard. And now I'm lucky enough to know his family personally. Um, I've been in the Eddie Aikau Invitational Big Wave event, the last one that ran. Um, so I had a video. I got a Christmas present when I was 10 years old, and it was an Eddie Aikau video, VHS tape. So historically speaking, he's been a, a massive inspiration. And, yeah, he's a, a massive um, spiritual figure for everyone in Hawaii, you know. Um, but obviously he had passed, you know. So for me growing up, like guys like La- uh, Laird Hamilton, uh, David Kalama, uh, guys that sort of started the towing revolution on Maui, um, a guy called Peter Mel, he's from Santa Cruz, a big wave surfer from Santa Cruz, legend um, 
Matt Surfer at Mavericks and a friend of mine too. So guys like that, I looked up to and um, watched a lot of videos and stuff until I was able to come over and do it myself and, and meet these guys, you know, and and now to be friends with them is uh, is just, yeah, it's amazing. Well, and you, you compete with them, but at the same time, there's this sort of kindred uh, feeling among among you. And I, I love listening to your your own podcast, The Late Drop, and seeing how you talk with these, these guys is just uh, amazing. How did you come up with the name? Uh, tell our listeners how you got Late Drop as a name for your podcast. Well, Big Wave Surfing is all about the drop. And a lot of the times you are definitely dropping in late, you know, so it made sense <laughs> that we call it the late drop. But, uh, you know, Big Wave Surfing, um, a lot of the time it's for the love of it. There's not a lot of money in, involved in it as a professional sport. We don't have many events. So a lot of people pull up to these spots just because they want to challenge themselves, you know. But, the, you know, for me, creating the podcast was to sort of try and get these men and women's names out in the public and tell their story and put a face to the name, you know, of of what they're doing. And, and a bigger picture, you know, um, I actually started a, a company with a friend of mine, Zach Porter, called Heavy Water Surf, and we're actually working with Surfline, creating more opportunities for big wave surfing, you know, so that's all about to come to fruition in the next month or so. We're going to announce a big partnership with those guys. And, uh, you know, and the, and the, and the podcast is just a, a piece of that as well, you know, so, you know, we're really trying to elevate the stature of what big, big wave surfing is. Um, we're trying to, you know, get more sponsors involved to come in and, and create maybe more opportunities for, a young kid that's listening to this today that like I was, that's listening to me, you know, and, um, you know, right now there's not really an avenue for young kids that aspire to be big wave surfers to become a professional. It's very, very hard. And there's very little people that are making enough money to call it a real job, you know? And I would imagine you got to ease into it to do it safely, but, uh, yeah, I mean, you just, there's some really talented kids right now that are 16, 17, 18 that are surfing some of the biggest waves in the world, you know, but again, they've been, they grew up in places that have big waves and they've been mentored probably by some really amazing people and they've just been in heavy surf since they've been young, you know, and, you know, then you got people that want to just do it when they're 30, you know, and they're, they're, the timeline and how they've got to do it is different, you know, so it's, you know, people get themselves in trouble. You know, some people maybe only surf big waves once in their life because they go out and scare themselves so much. <laughs> <of them. laughs> yeah. me. I know the feeling. Yeah. So you, um, you've been paddling the channels between the, the California Channel Islands and talking about sustainability and how important that is. Can you talk a little bit about your philanthropic efforts in that area as well? I know that's another interest of yours. Yeah, that was really cool. Again, my, my partner, Zach, we were at a... Um, sustainable food sort of event in, in Huntington Beach. And and I'd always thought about paddling the Hawaiian Island chain and you know, I'd paddled Catalina before and stuff like that. And and I was like, oh, I'd be cool to, I'd really like to paddle, you know, either the, the Channel Islands in California or Hawaii. And, you know, if I was going to do it, I'd love to do it for a good cause, you know, like raise some money or some awareness. And, and so we just came up with the idea. He's like, hey, I know some people at the Wrigley Institute, the USC Wrigley Institute off Catalina. And they do all sorts of cool stuff with sustainability, with food, water, energy, and waste. So um, from that conversation, we just decided we're going to do it, you know. And uh, the Seven Crossings Project, which is what it was called, was born. And um, a couple of years ago, I was able to get to do it, you know. And we just put it out, uh, I think, a six-part six, six part webisode series on my YouTube channel that 
you know, shows um, each day that we did it. You know, I paddled five days. I paddled over 170 miles wow. over five days. And, uh, yeah, we just tried to raise awareness for for those guys. Terrific. Well, uh, we always like to ask some our guests uh, when you're getting ready to go out and do whatever it is you do. Do you have any rituals or superstitions before you jump in the water or uh, is it just put it, strap it on and go? Not really, to be honest. Your, your equipment is everything, you know, so it's just going over your equipment, making sure that everything is, you know, as silly as that sounds, your fins are screwed in right, the wax is on, you've got, you know, the canisters for your inflation vests are all dialed in. So just sort of mulling over that stuff, you know, sort of just like, it's it's fun to go over that stuff and get in the zone. But, you know, for me, um, it's all about relaxing, being in the moment. I can't control Mother Nature. There's no use wasting any energy or unnecessary energy on what's it going to be like, what could it be like, how's it going to go, because I have no control. You know, I, I have control over the things that are in front of me. So, you know, I've learned, again, maturing a little more and, and, and more experience. Um, you know, I just let it flow, you know, and I find that when I go out and just it is what it is, what's going to happen is going to happen. I, 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 I genuinely perform my best when I'm re- more relaxed. Yeah, that's, that's true of life as well. <laughs> Are you teaching your kids to surf, Jamie? Yeah. Yeah, they surf. They love skateboarding more at the moment. So they're in the skateboarding, but we're watching a Funnily enough, a friend of mine's YouTube channel last night, and my daughter's like, I want to get barreled. I said, Well, you got to start to surf a little bit more. She's like, Well, you're taking me surfing tomorrow. So <laughs> that's good. Yeah. And then she'll get in the water and see how it goes. <laughs> I love it. Well, Jamie, this has just been a fantastic uh, discussion. It's, it's been especially meaningful to me because uh, I'm a not very good surfer, but I love my longboard. And anytime I get, get in the water and it's not too big, I love to do it. So hearing somebody who's done it so well uh, for so long uh, in such such challenging conditions is a real treat. And uh, I know our listeners are going to really enjoy hearing the the aspects of of what your experience is like here and, and literally the courage it takes to to go in that hellaciously big water. Uh, so really appreciate you spending some time with us today and we really wish you the best of luck and getting back from your injury and getting back out there on the water. We'll be looking for it. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. And, um, you know, I think it's, it's like anything in life. I think when you put your mind to something, whether it's like you guys going to space or flying a plane, it's, uh, you, you get comfortable, you know, you don't get complacent, but you get comfortable in that space that you're in. And, and then I think once you're comfortable and you've got that experience, you can really excel at what that is that you put your mind to, you know? So, um, I'm just glad that mine was the ocean. There's something about the salt water and the ocean that is just very therapeutic. And even being 30 feet underwater in shark infested waters, there's something about it that's still therapeutic. (laughs) (laughs) We we all have our domains that we love. You, You have the ocean, Sandy has the air, I have space. Those are our those are our places. <laughs> yeah, but I think that Jamie probably took a little more risk than uh, than any of us. Uh, either way. All right. Well, thanks again. And uh, we'll keep in touch for sure. Thank you, guys. I appreciate it. Our guest has been big wave surfer and long distance paddler, Jamie Mitchell. If you're interested in hearing from other big wave surfers, check out his own show, Late Drop, on YouTube. I'm Sandy Winifoe. And I'm Sandra Magnus. Many thanks to our sponsor, Duncan. Duncan fuels the people who take on every challenge headfirst, and we know the right kind of fuel they need. An ultra-smooth Duncan cold brew. 
Join us back in the Adrenaline Zone next week for a new episode and be sure to follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. 